Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Simon Lester. I'm a trade policy analyst here at the Herbert Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Welcome to today's event on intellectual property in the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, talks. Um, let me start out by saying that when I began my studies and career as an international trade lawyer back in the mid-1990s, intellectual property was kind of off on the periphery uh, of the issues that we dealt with. It was technically part of the trade regime, but honestly, we all felt pretty comfortable just ignoring it. Uh, conversations among trade lawyers about IP often went something like this. How did all that IP stuff get in here? I don't know. What does it mean exactly? I don't know. Something about Disney and Microsoft, I think. Uh, but at a certain point, it became uh, difficult to ignore the issues. Uh, the industry continued to push for stronger protections, and many other groups started pushing back. And IP is now front and center uh, in the trade debate. Even Paul Krugman uh, took notice of this recently. Last week, he had a column where he, he took a break from his normal focus on economic inequality and austerity to talk a little bit about intellectual property issues in the TPP. Uh, in that column, he said that what the TPP would do is increase the ability of corporations to insert control over intellectual property. And he asked, is this a good thing from a global point of view? He answered, doubtful. He said, the corporations benefiting from enhanced control over intellectual property would often be American, but this doesn't mean that the TPP is in our national interest. He said, what's good for big pharma is by no means always good for America. So are, are trade uh, rules on intellectual property in the national interest? Or are they more of a corporate handout, or perhaps something in between? And that's what we're going to be talking about here today. Now, when governments initially made the decision to include intellectual property in trade agreements, it seemed like a good idea for the trade regime. Doing so brought uh, support from important industries like the software industry, the movie industry, the pharmaceutical industry. And with this support, governments were able to get some important trade negotiations completed, uh, the Uruguay round of the GATT and the NAFTA. And at that point, intellectual property seemed to be firmly embedded as an important positive component of the trade regime. If you fast forward to today, though, things look very different. When the implications of some of these new IP rules were realized, uh, they began to cause a lot of trouble for trade talks. Issues such as access to medicines and fair use of copyright have led to, to frequent protests uh, from a number of actors. And the main place where this debate is playing out right now is in the, the TPP talks. The Trans-Pacific Partnership is a trade negotiation among 12 countries in the Pacific region. Oversimplifying things a little bit, uh, basically the US is proposing stronger protections and many of our trading partners are resisting. And many NGOs from across the political spectrum are fired up about stopping the TPP on the basis of these IP, IP rules. So I think it's fair to say that these days, intellectual property does at least as much to cause opposition to trade agreements as it does to generate support. <clears throat> now, to be clear, I don't think there's anybody out there arguing, saying we should get rid of intellectual property protection entirely. The, the debate is over how much protection there should be. Where is that right balance? How do we properly balance protections that give inventors and creators the incentive to innovate on the one hand with allowing those innovations to be disseminated to consumers on the other hand? And that's the debate that, in my view, should be going on in the TPP. So for example, copyright protection is great, but how long should the copyright term be? Um, alternatively, maybe the TPP is a terrible place for this debate. Maybe there should be some sort of intellectual property specific forum where we could talk about these issues rather than making it all a trade issue. Maybe we need some sort of 
World Intellectual Property Organization. Oh wait, we already have one. Maybe we should doing this. Maybe we should be doing this all there. So, so the key questions for me are: first, do intellectual property rules belong in the TPP? And if so, what should they say? What should the rules be? So, for thoughts on these and other questions related to IP and TPP, let me turn to today's expert panel. I'll introduce them first. Uh, they'll each speak for about 15 minutes, and then we should have time, hopefully, for some questions at the end. So. First up, we're going to have Tom Giovanetti. He's the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation, a free market think tank based in Dallas. Before he entered the policy world, Tom created his own intellectual property. He designed and patented filtration technologies for the marine aquarium hobby. Uh, Tom represents IPI, his institute at the, at the World Intellectual Property Organization, and he also represents them in the TPP process and the US-EU uh, free trade talks as well. Next up, we're going to have Bill Watson, uh, my colleague, trade policy analyst here at Cato. His research focuses on US trade remedy policies, disguised protectionism, and the institutional aspects of global trade liberalization. He manages free trade, free markets, right in the Congress, Cato's online database that tracks votes by uh, members of Congress on bills and amendments affecting trade and investment. He has a JD from Tulane Law School and an LLM from International and Comparative Law at GW Law School. And then finally, on my left, we're going to have Margot Kaminsky. Uh, she is the executive director of the Information Society Project and lecturer in law at Yale Law School. Uh, she's a graduate of that law school as well. She clerked on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, she's been a Radcliffe Research Fellow at Harvard and a Google Policy Fellow at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And she has just, uh, uh, just received an offer to, uh, for a faculty position at Ohio State Law School. So congratulations to Margot on that. Um, if, you have, if people are watching this through the web stream, or if you're in the audience too, if you want to tweet us a question, you can use the hashtag uh, CatoTPP, C-A-T-O-T-P-P. With that, let me turn this over to Tom to start us off. Thank you, Simon and uh, Bill, for the invitation. And thank you to the Cato Institute for this opportunity. Uh, IPI has enjoyed a, a very pleasant relationship with Cato over the years. We've published the work of a number of Cato scholars. We've had Cato folks speak at IPI events, and so I appreciate the, uh, the reciprocal nature of our invitation today. I sort of see my role in kicking things off here as being Captain Obvious. I don't have any particular unique insights, I think, to share, uh, but I think that in a lot of these discussions, some things that I think should be fairly obvious to people have been easily glossed over, and so I want to go over some of those points. I have four or five main points I'd like to make, but I'm intrigued to see sort of where the discussion actually goes. I think I know where it's going to go. Uh, I do like to point out, as was pointed out in the introduction, to actually have a little practical hands-on experience in the intellectual property world, designing products, <coughs> writing patent descriptions, and getting high-fived about a year later when the patent was actually granted. So uh, this is, it's a little bit personal to me rather than just academic. I'm actually one of those rare policy people who actually did something constructive before they got into the policy world. Uh, so uh, as I say, it's a little personal. I also will never forget the experience. I wrote a book a few years ago, and I'll never forget the experience of walking into a store and finding that the store was selling photocopies of my book for 75 cents. Uh, not selling the book, selling photocopies of the book. So. So IP has, has had a personal impact on my life as well as just an academic impact on my life. Uh, I, I think the way this discussion is going to go today is we will probably have less to say about trade and more to say actually about intellectual property. And I think that's where the dispute actually lies. Uh, folks on the left don't seem to have a problem with using trade agreements as leverage 
to extract higher environmental standards. They don't seem to have a problem using trade agreements as leverage to, to get greater labor standards. It seems to, there seems to not be some sort of universal principle that it's wrong to use trade agreements to extract concessions from our trading partners. The dispute seems to be on whether or not we actually believe in those concessions or not. I also like to, yeah, it does work, great. I also like to point out that intellectual property is considered to be a basic human right. I like to point this out because it makes folks on the copy left heads explode when I do this. Uh, at WIPO and at other international forums, I have, I have literally been accosted when reminding people that intellectual property is considered by the United Nations and by the signatory countries to the UDP as being a basic human right. Now, I mentioned this as an example. I'm going to reference some arguments today that I don't particularly find compelling, but some people do. And so in the interest of covering those arguments, I'm going to touch on some arguments that are not necessarily persuasive to me, but they may be persuasive to other folks. For instance, I don't give a wet slap about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but a lot of people do. So I think it's good to be reminded of that. So my co-panelist, Bill, has written a couple pieces on TPP, and the general slant has been that we need to get intellectual property discussions out of the TPP because it's holding up progress on the really big stuff. And Bill has used a phrase, and I'm sorry to rub your nose in this, but Bill has used a phrase. He has said that we are holding the TPP hostage to a narrow set of industries. So I want to camp out for a little while on this phrase, narrow set of industries. Let's talk about just how narrow this set of industries is in the intellectual property world. Now, what you're looking at here is a chart these are not MPAA statistics. These are US government commerce department statistics on US exports. What I've done in this chart is I've extracted pharma from chemicals. The second silo there is chemicals, and that's where pharma is normally categorized. I've extracted pharma from chemicals, and I've stacked it on top of copyright. So that first silo is what you might call the real core IP industries. And what you find is that the largest silo of US exports are the core IP industries. This is not a narrow set of industries. This is the main thing that we export. This chart at least shows you that it's the largest single silo of products that we export. So by the time I'm done here, Bill, I hope to put to death this phrase, a narrow set of industries. Uh, but what's really interesting about this chart is some of the other silos. The second silo is chemicals. Well, we know a lot of these chemicals are also covered by intellectual property. The third silo is aerospace. Well, we know a lot of that is also patented in intellectual property. The next silo is agriculture. Well, we know a lot of agriculture is covered by patents. We've got patented plant varieties, hybrid varieties. We've got patented seed traits. So the intellectual property aspects of our exports is not just that it is the largest single silo of exports. Wouldn't it be cool? If someone had done the exercise of going through all of these exports and figuring out which of these, is act which of these are actually IP intensive, well, it turns out someone has. And it turns out that the IP intensive industries are not just the largest silo of our exports. They are almost 60% of our exports. Now, these statistics are based on the NAICS codes. 42 of the four-digit NAICS codes have been identified by the Commerce Department as IP-intensive industries. The remaining 66 of the four-digit NAICS codes are other than IP-intensive industries. 
So Bill, this is not a narrow set of industries, okay? This is the main thing we export, are products that depend on intellectual property. They depend on patent, they depend on trademark, they depend on copyright. This is what we export. We export the products of innovation and creativity. This is who we are. Even our agricultural exports are primarily dependent on patent protection. The aerospace parts, the chemicals, all of these products are patented. Now, let me ask you this. Why would you not include intellectual property protection in a trade agreement if almost 60% of your exports are dependent on intellectual property protection? May I suggest, may I posit, that if USTR was not trying to make sure our trading partners respect our intellectual property, that we would not be discussing it at Cato, that they would be holding oversight hearings on Capitol Hill, because it would be malpractice for USTR to not be protecting intellectual property through trade agreements, and to not be insisting that our trading partners respect our intellectual property. That would be malpractice. So we have to deal with numbers and we have to deal with reality. This is what we export. This is what we send. This is what the world wants from us. If we are to be a robust exporter, if we are to be a robust trader on the world scene, we're going to have to make sure that our trading partners respect and protect our intellectual property. That is not too much to ask. So I want to deal with sort of the setup of the event, uh, and I want to do two things. I want to first push back on the idea that intellectual property protection is some kind of a handout. Now, uh, for those of you who know IPI, you know that we are limited <coughs> government types. I mean, we, we are strong believers that government is too big, does too many things, and spends too much money. And we are very much opposed to corporate welfare. There are loads and loads and loads of handouts to corporations in the federal budget, and every single one of them should go away. And we have written extensively on the fact that I don't know why, for instance, the Republicans don't make eliminating corporate welfare one of the top items on their agenda. We've written aggressively that, for instance, the Export-Import Bank is nothing but corporate welfare and should be done away with. So I totally agree that there should not be handouts going to corporations from the U.S. government. But insisting on intellectual property protection is not a handout to corporations. Insisting on intellectual property protection is an extension and a guarantee of the rule of law to those of our trading partners who don't respect this aspect of rule of law. So I reject categorically the idea that insisting that our trading partners respect our intellectual property rights is a handout to corporations. But the other thing I want to push back on in the, in the title of the event is this sort of zero-sum thinking that somehow insisting on intellectual property protection and trade agreements is it's either good for the country or it's good for corporate America. Can I not suggest that isn't it more likely that the answer is yes to both? Isn't it more likely that if something increases the wealth generation of a particular aspect of American industry that that is good for the country? Can I suggest that making sure we cut good deals for American agriculture, for instance, if we increase the wealth generating capacity of American agriculture, is that not also good for the country? 
I mean, when did we start having this sort of zero-sum thinking that something is either good for a sector of the economy or it's good for the overall economy? Of course, protecting intellectual property is good for the U.S. economy. Of course it is. There are any number of studies, some funded privately, some funded by the government, that have demonstrated this. This recent Department of Commerce study, it's based on 2010 data. The data that I showed you earlier was actually 2012 data. But this study found that when you figure the direct jobs and also the indirect supply chain jobs from the intellectual property intensive industries, it adds up to 40 million jobs or 27.7% of total employment. That's pretty significant. It also found that the IP intensive industries account for almost 35% of US GDP. Remember, that was fewer than half of the NAICS codes that, that's that those IP intensive industries are comprised of. That is significant. That is not a narrow set of industries. A privately funded study by NDP Analytics found that the FTAs have boasted US IP exports by over 10%. I mentioned earlier that I'm going to touch on at least arguments that may not be persuasive to me, but they may be persuasive to some. An argument that's not persuasive to me, for instance, is the argument about trade deficits and trade surpluses. I'm, I'm a free marketer. I don't think trade deficits matter. I have a trade deficit with a grocery store. I give them money, they give me goods. The way our government classifies things, that would be a shockingly horrible trade deficit. But I'm satisfied and the grocery store is satisfied. So I'm not persuaded by arguments about trade deficits. But for those of you who are, it's interesting to know that of, of the countries for whom we have FTAs, with every single one of those countries, we have a surplus, a trade surplus, not a deficit. So if you want to argue somehow that protecting intellectual property through trade agreements is somehow harmful to the US economy, you've got a pretty uphill case to make. Here's what's interesting. It's not just good for us, but it's also good for our trading partners. It is commonly asserted that when we insist on intellectual property protection and trade agreements, we are abusing our trading partners, that we're cramming down their throats intellectual property protection that they do not want. Well, the evidence suggests otherwise. The evidence suggests actually that when we insist that our trading partners raise their IP standards, it actually benefits them. Uh, there's a couple studies here from the OECD one from 2008, one more recently from 2012, to find that there's a direct relationship. Countries that increase their intellectual property protection, they see an increase in foreign direct investment inflows, may be more interesting, is their own domestic spending on R&D goes up when they raise their intellectual property protection. So we're actually doing our trading partners a favor when we insist that they raise their intellectual property protection standards. It's not just in our best interest, it's in their best interest as well. It also, there's also a pretty direct relationship that's been found on technology transfer. We run into this a lot at the international level at WIPO, where countries are complaining that intellectual property protection does not facilitate technology transfer. Well, Stealing might be a better, more efficient way to transfer technology, but I don't think we're in favor of that. Uh, when we find that China is stealing our intellectual property, we tend to recoil at that. That may be the most efficient way to transfer technology, but it's a violation, and it's immoral, and it's illegal. But the opposite is not true. It is not true that intellectual property protection is an obstacle to tech transfer. It's been proven 
that there's a close correlation between intellectual property protection and technology transfer. This study is a post-TRIPS analysis of the results of the impact of the TRIPS agreement. And a post-TRIPS analysis has showed that R&D spending in countries that have signed on to the TRIPS agreement has gone up from trend. It's gone up from 2.1% of GDP to 2.4% of GDP. Now, that's not huge. But in real terms, that turns out to be about 200, a new $200 billion committed to R&D, which is about the amount that Germany and Japan spend on R&D. So that's not insignificant. So this is a way that we can test the hypothesis that increasing, insisting that countries raise their IP standards is actually in their best interest. This post-TRIPS analysis is actually an excellent way to model that. And it turns out that it's true. It turns out that there are more, not fewer, medicines available in developed countries post-TRIPS. It turns out that developed countries now account for 72% of spending on medicine. That was 2011. In 1990, they accounted for 89% of spending. So medicines have actually become cheaper in developing countries post-TRIPS. So again here, I like to deal with evidence and numbers and facts, not just assertions. Uh, and I think that there's a very strong case to be made that not only is raising, in, not only is insisting on strong intellectual property protection in the direct interest of the United States economy, but it's also in the interest of our trading partners. I have a couple minutes left, and I'd like to touch on at least one more argument that I think is really important. The folks who are opposed to IP protection in trade agreements make what I think is sort of a novel argument. And it goes something like this. USTR should not be advocating US-level law protection in trade agreements. Uh, somehow USTR, I don't know, based on maybe some op-ed someone got published somewhere, or maybe based on some blog entry that some activist group made, that that's what USTR should base its advocacy on. That instead of advocating what is in US law, USTR should be some sort of rogue executive branch agency that decides for itself what, what policies it should advocate. Is that what we want? Or do we want USTR advocating levels of intellectual property protection that are based on US law. After all, that is how we make policy decisions. We make our policy decisions based on the legislative process. That's how we settle these things. You may not like the current copyright term. You may not like the current patent regime. But USTR is not going to base its advocacy on what you like. It's going to base its advocacy on what US law reflects. So of course we should expect USTR to be advocating 12 years of data exclusivity on biologics. Of course we should be expecting them to advocate a commensurate copyright term with what we have based in US law. What is the alternative? Is the alternative for USTR to just be out there advocating policies that are not reflected in US law? So I think at some, at some very simple level, that's sort of an absurd position to be taking. But we hear an awful lot of that. If you don't like the current patent regime, change it. If you don't like the current copyright term, the copyright term, get involved and change it. But until it changes, it's US law. Until it changes, the questions are settled. And that is what we should expect USTR to be advocating. Uh, many of the questions that Simon brought up about intellectual property in his discussion, they're very interesting questions. We can have that discussion, and it's, it'll be a fascinating discussion. But those are settled questions. They're settled in law. Those decisions have been made. 
And we should expect our negotiators at USTR to be advocating the questions that we have already settled in law, not some bizarre subset of protections based on someone's op-ed that they got published somewhere or based on someone's blog entry. I appreciate your time and your attention. I'm really looking forward to seeing where the conversation goes. It is my contention that this is, at heart, not a trade dispute at all. But this is simply a dispute about intellectual property protection. And I think we should acknowledge that and maybe have that discussion. Uh, it's really not a trade dispute. It's really an IP dispute. Thanks very much. Thank you, Tom. And now we have Bill Watson. Well, I want to say thank you to, to Tom and to Margo for coming uh, and, uh, and also to the audience for making it, um, it considering the snow. Uh, and, uh, and this is actually the second time that we've gotten everybody together. And, and the last one was actually snowed out. Uh, so we've rescheduled the event, and we almost we almost lost again. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm glad we didn't do it on Tuesday. Um, <laughs> uh, so so th this this has worked out really well, and I'm just glad that everybody could come. I uh, unfortunately I, I I may end up disappointing Tom. Um, I actually would like to move the discussion uh, back toward trade, uh, <laughs> and and make this a discussion about trade issues, uh, and and how IP fits into the trade issue and actually answer uh, Tom's question. Why shouldn't we have IP in trade agreements? Um, and, uh, and a part of that uh, lies in the answer, I, I think, to Tom's last question, which is what should USTR be doing? And the answer is advocating free trade. Uh, so let's, uh, let's take a look. I, what I'd like to do today is uh, I'd like to make uh, four, four points. Right? The first one is, how FTAs work to liberalize trade. I think it's important for us to understand that, uh, that free trade being a worthy goal is, um, there are a variety of ways that one might try to achieve that. Um, so why do we use FTAs? Why do they work for that purpose? And, and, and uh, what is this model that we use? Uh, and then I'd like to go back to IP and talk about how stronger IP protection doesn't necessarily fit very well into the model that we have for liberalizing trade through FTAs. Uh, and then um, I would like to uh, challenge the conventional wisdom that including IP in trade agreements is politically beneficial. As, uh, as Simon mentioned, uh, you know, there, were, there was a, a belief uh, about 20 years ago uh, that adding intellectual property into the trade agenda was a way to garner support. And I don't think that's true anymore, and I'll talk a little bit about why that's so. And then finally, I'd like to offer uh, some positive, uh, constructive suggestions about what we could do with intellectual property in trade agreements in a way that, um, that fits with the general mission of promoting free trade and, and works a little bit better with the model that we have. Um, so talking about, uh, about how free trade agreements work. Uh, for a minute, I, I, I want to do this quickly. I don't want to spend too much time talking about this, but I, I think it's really important that we understand that free trade agreements are magic. Uh, they, they take special interests and rent-seeking and turn them against each other. They take one, one company's, one industry's rent-seeking and another company's rent-seeking. They combine them together and create liberty. It is wonderful. Um, if you don't have free trade agreements, 
you have a, a political dynamic uh, for, for trade, for trade barriers and trade liberalization, where you have import competing businesses and industries seeking protection, uh, seeking trade barriers, uh, and you have import consuming industries fighting against trade barriers. Uh, and, and that's why, even without trade agreements, we, we don't have, we, we wouldn't worry about having a completely protected economy. Right? There would be domestic uh, actors uh, looking to open up the market um, because they, they want imports. Uh, now, we, we don't worry too much about consumers in the political uh, sphere because for most consumers, you know, they're not hiring lobbyists and going on Capitol Hill. So we're talking about industries working against each other. When you make trade about reciprocal trade agreements and you say the U.S. is going to lower all of its barriers, or most of them, and another country or a whole group of countries, they're going to lower their barriers too. And we're all going to do this as one big package. You change the political dynamic. And so what you end up with is you still have your import consuming industries, your import competing industries, but you have all of them. right? So. Uh, even if, say, the import consuming industry for one particular product is, is particularly powerful so that you can't lower trade barriers in that area, if you make it a whole big package, uh, you end up bringing enough people in together to lower that particular barrier as long as we get the whole package. Um, but you also bring in industries that are looking for export opportunity. Right? So uh, US companies that want market access abroad, the, the mantra is 95% of the customers outside of the United States, right? And so there, there's a lot of political interest in lowering foreign barriers. And this works on both sides of the equation. So everything that's going on politically in the United States is going on politically in other countries as well. And let me really quickly give you one political example, because I think this is really important to understand exactly why trade agreements are good and how they function. And then we'll contrast that with IP in just a minute. Um, so shoes. Right? The United States has tariffs on shoes. They range from 8% to 65%, depending on the particular kind of shoe. 99% uh, of the shoes that we buy in the United States are imported. A lot of them are made in Vietnam. But there's a factory in Maine where there are 1,300 people employed making shoes for New Balance. And so we have these tariffs on shoes. And without trade agreements, the political arrangement right now is such that those, those shoe tariffs would stay in place. Uh, I, I would love to get rid of them anyway, but we're having trouble with that. So let's, uh, let's, let's find another avenue. Um, and so we're, we, can, we can use trade agreements to make that happen. The, um, now, getting rid of the shoe tariffs will certainly benefit Nike. Right? This is a, a US company. Uh, they're, they're certainly interested in getting the shoe tariffs lowered, and so they will lobby for that. It will benefit them. But that's not why trade agreements are good. Right? The, the lowering of the barriers is good because Right, right now, the barrier uh, costs, on average, $5 per pair, costs consumers $2 billion per year, overpaying for shoes. Right? This is the kind of progress that we're hoping to get. This is the goal right? uh, for so many. It's, it's not just shoes. We do it for, for so many different industries at the end of the day. Right? So let's contrast that for a minute with how IP works. Right? One of the great things about trade liberalization is that even if you don't do it perfectly, you're, you're still doing something good, right? So you, you have a goal, right? Your tariff goes down to zero, right? That would be the, that would be the ultimate goal, right? You, something very transparent. You want to get it down to zero. You see a barrier, you want to get rid of it. Um, if you go from 30% tariff to 15% tariff, you've made progress, right? It's really clear 
what, what the goal is. Uh, that's really not the case with intellectual property. So let me just give some examples of what's in the US uh, trade agenda in terms of IP. These, there's just a couple of examples I think that are illustrative, right? Uh, the copyright term, life of the author plus 70 years. Why is it life of the author plus 70 years? Well, there's this really interesting graph that I like uh, that shows when it is that Mickey Mouse will go into the public domain, right? Now, maybe it's a coincidence that every time Mickey Mouse is about to go into the public domain, the copyright term is extended. Maybe. I'll let you judge for yourself, right? So that's why we have a copyright term of 70 years. Um, Tom mentioned data exclusivity for biologics. What this means is that um, when you apply for approval for a new drug, uh, you, you, have to, you have to get approval from an agency. And how long uh, do you have, does a, a generic competitor have to wait before it can also get approval from that agency? Right? 12 years? Eight years? Right? Well, right now we have 12. In, in Japan, it's six. Right? Uh, does it need to be 12? Is 12 better than six? Right? It, it's not clear immediately that 12 is the right answer. Is 18 better than 12? Right? It's not as clear cut as, as tariffs and, and other kinds of trade barriers are and what exactly our goal is. Right? And we can see how this doesn't really fit into the paradigm of, of trade agreements when we see that the IP in trade agenda is really focused on, on the export industries. In, this, in the same way that, uh, that, that other industries that aren't related to IP, they, they go to USTR and they seek uh, foreign market access, right? Uh, the, there's a, an issue right now about Japanese rice tariffs, right? The US rice industry wants Japanese tariffs to be lowered, right? This is part of the process, right? But if Japanese rice tariffs are lowered, right, that makes rice cheaper in Japan, right? It benefits Japanese consumers. It, it's not clear right away why extending data exclusivity for another six years on biologics is good for Japanese consumers. Uh, you're not getting the same kind of good policy dynamic at the end. And I thought it was really interesting that Tom uh, brought up issues about labor and environment. Um, I think that uh, the, the idea that foreign countries need to adopt US laws, US IP laws, um, before we can trade with them is very similar to the idea that they need to adopt currency, uh, uh, particular currency practices, uh, particular labor laws and environmental laws. These are excuses for protectionism. Right? It is not a free trade argument to say that we should make lowering barriers conditional on the adoption of, of whatever US law. Right? One of the benefits of trade is that we can trade with countries that have different laws that do things differently. So I think, I think that that's a particularly dangerous route to go. Um, the, on the issue of political, uh, political aid that adding IP to the agenda provides, I, I really do think that the argument was there uh, maybe 20 years ago that if you want to have a more ambitious US trade agenda, you need to provide some kind of sweetener, uh, something that will help get a little bit more support on board. Um, and so adding IP brings on support from industries that might not have been particularly interested in trade before. Um, Hollywood, uh, uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, uh, biotechnology. Uh, now they're very interested in the trade regime, very, very uh, supportive of trade agreements because they include some of their issues in them. But I think it's really interesting. Nowadays, you'll see um, 
for example, uh, the US Chamber of Commerce. Uh, represents a very wide range of businesses and is very, uh, very adamant about uh, IP protection. They, they, they definitely want the trade agenda to include IP protection. Uh, but, but you have to wonder, if there weren't IP in the trade agreements, would they oppose the trade agenda? I don't think so. Uh, I, if, you, if you have you know, large-scale large uh, industry groups, uh, yes, they support IP in the trade agenda, but I don't think that it's, it's such a big issue that they would allow it to take the whole agenda hostage. Um, so we may not be getting quite the amount of support for the trade agenda that, that we used to. Um, and I think that we need to take into account the opposition. Uh, adding new issues to the trade agenda may bring on some support, but it also brings on a whole new group of detractors people who might not have been particularly concerned about trade, who, who had no opinion one way or the other, because they're internet activists. All they care about is not censoring the internet. And you see this, this picture. I, I stole this off of some website on the internet. I don't even know where I got it. Um, so you didn't respect their intellectual property? No, no, I didn't. I didn't. It was horrible. Fair use. I, I bet they believe in fair use, though. I, uh, <laughs> um, this kind of thing is everywhere. Um, it, it's, it's very prominent uh, source of opposition. Uh, whether or not the TPP is in fact a, a backdoor secret way to get SOPA imposed in the United States is somewhat irrelevant if a whole bunch of people think that it is. Um, so there's a, a political calculation uh, going on that I, at USTR that I think is, is missing some pieces, right? Uh, that, that on net, it may be that adding in intellectual property does more to harm the political viability of free trade agreements than it does uh, to bring on, on any kind of real support. Also, the, the US agenda not only engenders some opposition domestically, it's also having a hard time uh, getting international support from our trading partners. Uh, this is a really interesting graph that shows the difference is, based on the, the, the uh, TPP IP chapter that was uh, leaked by WikiLeaks, uh, showing all the different negotiating positions, um, this shows the distance in, in position between all the different trading partners. So if the US dropped out of the TPP negotiations tomorrow, the IP chapter would be written like that. Right? These other countries have pretty much agreed on what it is they want to have in the, in the TPP on IP. And the US is pushing something else. Um, and you know, that's not to say that what they're pushing isn't good for US companies, right? but they're definitely giving something else up. Right? So this requires a lot of negotiating capital to try and get all of those countries moved over there towards the US position. Right? What else is the US giving up? And, and I, I don't know the answer. I, I don't know that it's possible to find out specifically what it is. Um, but it's got to be something, right? There are some. Uh, trade barriers, foreign trade barriers that are not being lowered, not being lowered as quickly, because the US is pushing for 70 years uh, instead of 50 years after the death of the author for, for copyright protection. Um, so what we see is that the US is pushing a, a, a very strong IP position that uh, nobody else wants, right? that isn't bringing support uh, for the trade agenda in the United States. Um, and that doesn't liberalize trade and doesn't fit into the model. Now, I have a rule for myself that uh, for every uh, five 
times that I complain, I have to offer at least one constructive suggestion. Um, so hopefully when the world gets better, I can change that to four to one, but right now it's five to one. Um, so let me, let me offer what I think could be a very good way to put IP into the trade agenda in a way that furthers the, the genuine actual goals that we should have for free trade agreements, which is to liberalize trade. Um, one of those is non-discrimination. Um, thankfully, this is already international law. It's uh, TRIPS Article 3 already requires that countries not, um, not discriminate uh, in the granting or enforcement of intellectual property uh, uh, protections uh, based on the nationality of the, of the right holder. Uh, this is a very good rule, uh, prevents, uh, prevents a lot of protectionism uh, that you could see in intellectual property regimes that did exist in the past in a number of ways before the TRIPS agreement. Um, another, another one that we could add into the agenda is uh, international exhaustion. This is global first sale. Uh, the idea that once a, a product is sold uh, in, uh, in, in one country, um, an authorized sale by the rights holder, that just as it can be resold without permission in that country, it should be able to be resold in other countries. Um, I think this is, a, this is a, a very good rule, something that we could add into the agenda. Uh, actually, right now, US law uh, currently allows for international exhaustion and copyright after a Supreme Court case, um, uh, the um, Kurtzang case. And, uh, and interestingly enough, now, because of that case, a US law violates uh, Article 4, Paragraph 11 of the US Jordan Free Trade Agreement, which requires that you not permit international exhaustion. So I, it would be uh, very helpful if we're looking for ways to, to have US law put into, uh, the, the, uh, into our free trade agreements, then maybe we should be looking for international exhaustion as a, as a way to go forward that liberalizes trade and also sets IP policy in a way that's helpful for that. And, and finally, I'd like to offer, offer a, a warning against geographic indications. Uh, we, we really need to avoid, and the US is doing a good job of this so far, I, I think, uh, avoid adopting a European style of geographic indications where you can't buy Swiss cheese unless it's made in Switzerland. Um, we already have in place systems for uh, determining uh, you know, wh whether a particular term is generic, uh, whether it denotes some kind of origin. Uh, th those are good systems that we have already in the United States, and I think negotiating these on some kind of ad hoc basis or, or um, or coming up with some system that protects particular geographic areas is protectionism, and we should avoid that. Uh, in it, in to the extent that it's an IP issue, uh, it's a good thing that the United States is, is sticking strong on that one, uh, and, um, and, and we should see more of those kinds of things. So this is just you know, three issues. There are, there are others. I would love for us to be talking about how we can incorporate these kinds of issues into the IP agenda in, in, in trade. Um, and what makes these different um, from what, what Tom is envisioning is that trade, the IP and the trade agenda should not be about market access. It shouldn't be about US companies and how we can set rules that benefit particular US industries. Uh, it should be about setting rules, rules that are beneficial to the system, that increase the, 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 the flow, the free flow of goods and services, um, without looking at particular parochial interests, um, like you know, this particular industry is good for the U.S. and 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 setting our policy that way. Um, so I will stop there and uh, thank you.
Thank you, Bill. And finally, we have Marco. Thank you. So uh, I'm actually going to start in a slightly different place than I was intending to uh, in response to something Tom said. I, too, have extensive experience working in an IP-intensive industry, uh, actually two different IP-intensive industries. The first was when I worked for a literary agency negotiating copyright contracts on the behalf of our clients, who are all authors. Uh, the second was when I worked as a freelance author selling my copyright to magazines. And the third is now where I work in academia, uh, where there are different kinds of incentive structures uh, that cause me to produce instead of direct payments from the magazines that I sell my work to. What all of this taught me was that IP is not a thing. It's not, there's not just one size fits all right IP system. IP is a series of policy levers. It's a series of little tailorings on the edges of what the system looks like. And so you can't talk about intellectual property law without talking about how intellectual property law gets made. Um, and that actually leads me to my focus for today and my focus in the paper that you all may or may not have picked up or skimmed, uh, which is the trade system, not IP law. Um, what I propose is that our international IP lawmaking agenda and the details of our international IP lawmaking has been captured through our free trade regime because of the way Congress has structured our free trade negotiating mechanisms. I'm going to talk about how that capture happens, what that structure looks like, two, what the consequences of that capture are, uh, and I'm going to talk about law. I'm not going to talk about IP fuzzy math that comes from privately funded industry studies. And three, I'm going to talk about fixes, potential fixes, uh, for this system through which our IP negotiating um, agenda has been captured. So first, I'd like to talk about what I mean by capture and how capture happened. Congress has hand-tied itself in trade lawmaking, famously, to prevent protectionism from occurring uh, at the ratification and implementation level for free trade agreements. So most of what goes on on the substantive level in international trade uh, lawmaking happens at the executive branch. The big irony is that in doing that, in shifting away from Congress to the executive branch uh, in order to prevent protectionism um, and prevent capture through Congress, Congress has set it up so that instead our trade regime, our trade agenda, gets captured in the executive branch. Up until around eight months ago, everybody was talking about the USTR not as a capture problem, but as a transparency problem. So there was a lot of noise about the fact that the trade representative, uh, some eight to 10 years ago, stopped voluntarily releasing draft negotiating agreements. Uh, so you don't see the draft of free trade agreements until they're finished, signed, and you can't do anything about them. Um, but this transparency problem is actually reflective of, of a larger issue, which is information capture. The problem is not just that USTR doesn't make the text of free trade agreements available to everybody. The problem is that the USTR is subject to, US Trade Representative's Office, is subject to information input by only a subset of US industry interests. Uh, and I do say industry, um, but it also matters that uh, some other industries are not at the table. So information capture happens uh, sort of at two stages. One has to do with the information coming out of an agency, and the other stage has to do with the information that goes into an agency. That's how information gets involved in governance. At the US Trade Representative's Office, you have not only a lack of information coming out, 
but you have a very controlled set of input channels that uh, control the kinds of information that go in at the level of the text. So simply put, the membership of the US Trade Representatives uh, Industry Trade Advisory Committee in intellectual property law consists almost entirely of big content, big pharma, um, no internet companies, no small businesses, which have been on the agenda for President Obama, but aren't on ITAC 15, uh, and no public interest representatives, which bothers me for another reason. In most agencies, you have something called the Federal Advisory Committee Act that governs the relationship of advisory committees to the government agency. The Federal Advisory Committee Act was actually enacted specifically to prevent capture of government agencies by their advisory committees. And it contains two important requirements. One of them is that the industry groups, the industry advisory committees, must consist of a balanced membership. And the other one is that the industry advisory committees must have some sort of oversight mechanism uh, where they're transparent about the meetings with the government agency and they're transparent about what they're asking for and what they're getting. That prevents capture. The US Trade Representatives Advisory Committees are subject to neither of those protections. There's no functionally no balanced membership requirement, and there's no transparency requirement. So it's not particularly surprising that the USTR ends up captured in the IP space. Now I want to get to the consequences, because this is where it's really interesting and complicated and where being an academic gives me a leg up. Because um, I have time to actually sit down and read all these free trade agreements, which I think very few people actually do. So as Tom pointed out, the US Trade Representative is not tasked with making new international IP law. It is tasked by Congress in negotiating mandates in the Trade Act uh, with negotiating at the level of US law. And that's not what it does. It doesn't, we don't put US law in our free trade agreements. Um, the IP Advisory Committee for years has been putting its version of US IP law. So US IP law put through the front house mirror of their advice, and that's what goes into our free trade agreements. Some examples of the, that skewing that happens during the paraphrasing process include what Bill pointed out, which is that the USTR has bizarrely appeared to be exporting one side of a circuit split where we have circuit splits on issues in intellectual property law. Uh, so when the Supreme Court decided Kurtzang on first sale doctrine last year, uh, it turned out we had actually been exporting the opposite side of that circuit split. The other paraphrasing distortion that happens is that the, uh, the free trade agreements zoom out where domestic law in the US is unfavorable to the industries that sit on the advisory committees. So for example, there's an attorney's fee provision in 512F of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act that is not the greatest thing for content providers if they abuse the notice and takedown system. And that particular detail hasn't made its way into our free trade agreements. And another example of this sort of zooming out on the elements of US law that disfavor those members of the uh, IP advisory committee is the lack of big balancing member uh, mechanisms that exist in US IP and don't make it into our free trade agreements. So the biggest example of this is there is no fair use in our free trade agreements. Um, there is a reference to an international exceptions and limitations system, which is not the same as US fair use. And there are a large number of US industries, particularly internet companies, that rely financially on there being a broad enough fair use exemption, uh, exception for their industries to exist, both domestically and abroad. 
those companies are now making 50 to 60% of their revenue abroad, and none of them sit on the IP Industry Trade Advisory Committee. So what USTR does, the US Trade Representative does, to the text of our IP chapters of our free trade agreements, um, with the advice of its advisory committees, is it creates an umbrella, really broad language, when it comes to features that harm its advisory committee members, and it uses a scalpel, really narrow, precise language, not always consistent with US law, when it comes to things that its advisory committee members want. This shifts the cost of lawmaking. So if you take this distorted version and you put it into the international space and you then go to the other country that's trying to adopt these agreements, uh, you're going to find that the law that gets adopted abroad is going to look like a more IP maximalist, less balanced uh, version of what we have at home in the US. And in fact, we have an example of this going on right now. Uh, Australia, which signed a US-Australia free trade agreement with us years ago, has been trying to enact fair use and has been receiving pushback because there's no fair use in our Australia-US free trade agreement. So what are the actual substantive harms that come out of these distortions? Um, it harms, as I was saying, the companies that don't sit on the Trade Advisory Committee uh, that do export and rely on IP flexibilities. This includes internet companies, it includes small businesses, uh, it includes large businesses that have gotten tired of IP over-enforcement. This process of capture also prevents any kind of reform at a domestic level. So there's nothing in the negotiating mandates from Congress to the USTR that says export every single detail of US law. The advisory committee working with USTR decides which details get exported. And the details that they export lock our Congress in and prevent reform on any of the details that we have put interna into international law. This also, there's actually a much more nefarious uh, use of the system that's been come to light actually in the last couple of days. Uh, the Aereo case at the Supreme Court just had an amicus brief filed by uh, IFPI where they try to claim that the language in our free trade agreements actually represents the correct interpretation of US law where domestically we have a circuit split. So they're trying to argue that the US Supreme Court, looking at a court circuit split in the United States, should use one of those narrowing moments in our free trade agreements to change US law. So that's just outright policy laundering. It's taking an agenda they want at home, putting it in the international space, and then bringing it back to change our law without going through any legislative process. And then, um, as Bill pointed out, uh, this also uh, creates a situation where the capture of the IP agenda in our trade agreements affects everything else that's in our free trade agreements because it threatens the legitimacy or perceived legitimacy of the trade regime. Um, if you are a, an industry that really, really, really wants lower tariffs on agriculture, you should not be happy about the fact that this capture is happening in the IP chapter because it might take all of your interests down with it. Um, so I have a number of proposed fixes because I too believe in not just complaining but trying to change things. Um, and I'm not wedded to any one of these. This is sort of a menu. Uh, if you go with something on the higher end of the menu, you'll have large amounts of change. If you go with something at the more specific end of the menu, you'll have probably less change, but still something will happen. Uh, the biggest change would be to change our entire trade negotiating regime, fast track. 
and involve Congress more. So you'll remember the capture is happening because we're moving from Congress into the executive branch. If we can try to involve Congress more and involve more direct representation, then we might end up in a situation where the capture of the executive branch is not as appealing because it's not as effective. Uh, I'm not sure how what I feel about that proposed <laughs> solution. Um, the second solution would be to take issues like intellectual property lawmaking out of trade entirely. So when you recognize that an issue that has gotten shoved into trade uh, is extremely attractive to private interests because it's so darn complicated, it's not just an issue of lowering tariffs, it might be less appropriate to use those abbreviating negotiated mechanisms and more appropriate to add more democracy just to that issue, right? So that would be not kill fast track entirely, which was option one, but kill fast track with respect to intellectual property law or take intellectual property law out of trade. Um, now, some more moderate possible responses. Um, Congress could do something about this. Uh, in creating a new fast track negotiating mechanism, Congress could make its negotiating mandates to the USTR reflect the fact that this capture problem is happening. So Congress could tell the US Trade Representative, look, our IP system is not just this maximalist crap, it's actually a bunch of balance in it. Uh, and we want to make sure that you include in these free trade agreements the balance that protects other industries that are not sitting on your advisory committee. So include fair use, include you know uh, attorneys' fees in 512F, et cetera. Um, and then make those negotiating mandates enforceable so that if the US Trade Representative ignores them, again, we kick everything out of fast track. Finally, I come to the real core of the problem, which is these advisory committees, right, mixed with the lack of transparency. So you can solve that in one of two ways, or actually ideally in two ways employed together. One is to make the US Trade Representative more transparent. Uh, we will make the information capture problem a lesser problem if the US Trade Representative is required to release texts while the agreement negotiating is ongoing. Uh, the other is to target the actual advisory committees. Um, there, we could create a new advisory committee that uh, represents you know, digital policy interests or innovation interests um, or a public interest advisory committee that deals with public health. Um, or I think more effectively, you could mandate, go back to what the Federal Advisory Committee Act required from the uh, beginning and mandate that the industry trade advisory committees themselves be subjected to a balanced membership requirement. So instead of just having big pharma, big content, et cetera, on the industry trade advisory committee for the IP chapter, you mix that group up with the other interests that are involved in domestic IP lawmaking within the United States. Um, so there's, there's been some movement recently, actually surprising movement recently, to actually affect some of these changes. Uh, there's been significant pushback in Congress against the recreated version of Fast Track. Uh, and the executive branch voluntarily announced a creation of a public interest trade advisory committee, I think it was just last week. Um, There's some limitations about that particular committee and where it sits in the advisory committee system, but this is already showing that some of the capture issues that I have observed and the consequences are having real effects on the health. Um, so in summary, the IP negotiating mechanism that we've had for years has been captured. Uh, there are substantive consequences at the level of the text to that capture, and we need to fix that or get IP out of trade, or else IP is going to bring down our entire trade negotiating agenda. Thank you. Thank you very much to, uh, to all the panelists. I think they, they've all given us a lot to think about. Um, 
it's 12.06 now. We have some time for questions, so I want to you know, get, get everyone started thinking of questions. Um, we didn't talk about this beforehand, but I always like to have a little debate and discussion. I know Tom went first there, and then the others kind of had a chance to respond. I, don't, I thought maybe, Tom, if you have anything you want to re respond to what these two said, and then maybe they could quickly. So just quickly, if you have a couple sure. minutes you want to say, and then we can have these two, and then we can open up to questions. Sure. Um, do I have this on? Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I, I think it's an interesting discussion. I think that I'm right that it's not a trade dispute. It's, a, it's an intellectual property dispute, although I do appreciate my other two panelists getting more into the weeds sort of as how the trade stuff goes. Uh, there's a couple things I'd like to correct. I'd like to correct what I think is an important misunderstanding that may have come out of Margo's presentation. Uh, there's nothing in our FTAs that precludes companies from developing a fair use regime of their own. Uh, one of the things that we have at the international level on intellectual property is a constant insistence that we maintain national flexibilities on intellectual property policy. And so we do not dictate the absolute finely grained details of intellectual property policy to our trading partners. Uh, we give them high level protections and we leave it to them to work out whatever exceptions or flexibilities they think are appropriate for their country. So there is, to, to say that our FTAs don't include fair use, there's nothing in our FTAs that precludes countries from expanding or developing their own unique fair use mechanisms and their own fair use exceptions that they think are appropriate, right up to the level where that fair use exception might violate something they'd already agreed to. So remember what fair use is. I mean, fair use is an affirmative defense against infringement. It's an exception that we carve out to IP largely for what are called non-economic applications. So I think it's important to remember that when someone sort of tries to represent to you that there's all this billions of dollars of economic activity based on fair use, remember fair use is primarily a carve out for non-economic applications. So it's kind of hard to argue that there's an enormous amount of wealth being generated based on fair use. But there's nothing in the FTAs that precludes countries from developing robust fair use regimes while still being completely consistent with the FTA. The, the other point that I wanted to make, and it's a, it's a very minor point, but it's important to me and it's important to IPI, is that, Bill, on one of your slides, uh, your, your Mickey Mouse chart slide, you also had at the bottom ISP liability. I want to really be very clear for the record. It is far from a consensus opinion for those of us who believe in intellectual property protection that ISP liability should be part of that. Uh, at, at IPI, we have rejected calls for ISP liability. We think that is a case of shifting someone's enforcement problem onto someone else's back. So I don't want anybody to assume from the slide somehow that ISP liability is part and parcel of the agenda of people who believe in intellectual property policy. Thanks, Bill or Margo, do you have anything you want to... Uh that comment about ISP liability is the best news I've heard probably in a year. Um, <laughs> so that's that's great. We agree on something. Um, the only comment I was going to make with response to the the billions of dollars of fair use uh, critique that you had is that search engines are based in the United States on fair use. Bill, do you want to say anything? Yeah, if I could add, I, I would like, maybe I could ask Margo a question real quick. Um, talking about fast track and, and, and switching... From, from the executive uh, to the legislative branch. Um, to what extent, I, I, I'm a little bit skeptical that, uh, that Congress is not equally captured uh, by the same interests uh, that, that may have captured the executive. Um, but do you think that through the fast track process, uh, which includes negotiating objectives that, that Congress imposes uh, on the executive, uh, that maybe 
that might be a good avenue for reforming the system uh, to to get Congress to put in particular negotiating objectives that that rein back uh, the executive on this issue. Yeah. So as I said, I'm not wedded to killing fast track, um, and I know that there are a lot of people out there who are. So I want to distinguish myself from them. Um, uh, go. I'm going to go to your second question first. I think that fast track could be changed to have a system that allows less capture at the executive branch level. Um, as you said, putting in negotiating objectives that are enforceable, which right now is not the case. So right now, Congress puts in negotiating objectives, but there's no consequence if the executive branch decides to ignore them. So just having Congress put in a new set of ob negotiating objectives isn't necessarily going to do anything. But if you put in negotiating objectives and you say, listen, executive branch, if you ignore these, we're going to go back to an Article II treaty process for that part of the agreement, um, that has real consequences, and so that might actually have some real bite. Um, the response about uh, Congress itself being captured, I think that has been the story of U.S. domestic IP lawmaking for a very, very long time, as you showed with your Mickey Mouse chart. Uh, I do want to believe that something changed a couple of years ago with the uh, failure to enact the SOPA Stop Online Piracy Act and Protect IP Act, SOPA and PIPA, um, where we actually saw some of the notorious collective action problems in, international, or in intellectual property lawmaking get solved through use of the Internet. Uh, and we've seen since then that Congress is very, very wary of increasing IP protection. It's not, it's not a good subject matter to play with. Um, so I do have some hope that if you brought at least some of this system, the trade system, back into Congress's hands, you would have at least no more ratcheting up of IP levels through that system. Could I make a, a general comment on that? Um, I mean, two thoughts really spring to mind for me. First of all, one of the, um, one of the well, I, I think it's interesting that, that US, the executive branch is captured and Congress is also captured on IP. And it reminds me a little bit of how when Larry Lessig lost at the Supreme Court, his conclusion was that the system was corrupt. Uh, rather than concluding, hmm, maybe I'm wrong. Or rather than concluding, hmm, I guess I'm in the minority position or I haven't persuaded enough people. I think it's kind of funny to conclude that because you don't get your way on a policy, that must mean the whole system's corrupt or that must mean everyone's captured. It's possible that people, not enough people agree with you on that. The, the second comment that I want to make is on this issue of sort of opening up trade negotiations and making them more transparent. I mean, who's opposed to transparency, right? You cannot negotiate trade agreements between countries. You cannot negotiate treaties between countries on a wiki. It doesn't work. We would, we would not have completed the Yalta Agreement right now if it, if it had been negotiated on a wiki. It doesn't work. Countries need confidentiality when they are floating ideas and when they were putting concessions on the table. And this leads me to an important observation that I need to make, and I need to make this based on my experience on almost 10 years working at WIPO in Geneva. One of the strategy of who I call the IP skeptics, and it's, I'm trying to be respectful in that term, but one of the strategies of the IP skeptics is to hogtie and to grind to a halt any institution or any process that is busy norming IP standards. And so this is basically what's happened at WIPO. 
is that WIPO has been virtually ground to a halt by the activist NGOs at WIPO, who their mission is to stop WIPO from continuing to norm IP standards. And it strikes me that asking USTR to open up the process and start putting everything up on a wiki, and you know, when most of the words are still in brackets, we're still gonna put it out there for everybody to see it. Whether it's the intention or not, I can tell you that the result of that process would be to grind it to a halt, and you would not succeed any longer in getting trade agreements completed. One more, one more comment from Argo, and then we'll go to questions. So I want to respond to that, because I think actually your two points tie together very nicely. Um, the reason, uh, at least in academic circles, that we understand that Congress had been captured uh, in the IP area, lawmaking area is because of a massive collective action problem. So the interests of those people who uh, are IP users or who use flexibilities in IP uh, regimes for the longest time was not represented at Congress because it's incredibly hard for those people to individually come together and have any kind of influence on congressionally based lawmaking. So the, the, the issue was not that uh, those people didn't exist. The issue is that it was very difficult for those people to organize. And we've seen in the last no couple of years that those people now have a much easier time organizing. So that's the collective action issue, uh, which is my explanation for why Lessig concluded that the system was corrupt rather than concluding that he was wrong. Um, that's related to the transparency discussion, uh, because actually WIPO hasn't stopped making law. Uh, WIPO, which is significantly more transparent than the free trade uh, negotiating regime, has just made a new treaty, which is the Treaty for the Visually Impaired, uh, which is a copyright exceptions treaty. So I would actually counter-argue that when you have a more transparent regime, this allows the solving of a lot of collective action problems, which allows the kind of law to be made uh, that takes into account all people's interests, as opposed to just the interests of those advisory committees who are sitting at the negotiating table. Okay, with that, uh, let me open the we'll open things up to questions. Is there any, any, just raise your hand if you have one. I see one in front and uh, right here. Hi, uh, I'm Gabriel Michael. I was pleased to see one of my little graphics up there during Bill's presentation. Um, thanks for being here, everyone. It was a, a great uh, and interesting discussion. Um, I have, a couple of questions. I guess first off, it, it seems to me, and maybe I don't want to speak for Cato, but I, I believe I read this in one of the one of the Cato blogs. It seems to me that the the true free trade position would simply be we want to drop our tariffs regardless of what other people do. Um, and so, you know, kind of from the libertarian perspective, um, it isn't really that what we should be doing, and and not worry so much about what everyone else is gonna give us in response for doing something that ultimately benefits us. Um, second, I wanna ask Tom about this notion that uh, IP skeptics simply don't have enough people agreeing with them. It seems to me to, to conflict a little bit because you said that at WIPO we're not making progress. Well, couldn't it be that the reason we're not making progress at WIPO is because not enough people agree with us? Um, and then finally, I also want to ask Tom, uh, I didn't get a sense from your presentation that you recognize that there's really a societal trade-off involved in intellectual property policy. At least in the US, we have a utilitarian basis for this that recognizes that you are balancing private benefit and the public good by the way that you calibrate intellectual property policy. Um, so is, is that really not what you believe, or 
how, how would that balance look in kind of the, the vision of intellectual property policy that you have? Well, your second question is an opportunity for me to go on an extended rant, which I will try to not do. Um, we certainly do have utilitarian aspect to our IP system in the U.S., but the utilitarian factor is sort of a boundary condition for it. It's not the basis of it. If you read Federalist 43, if you read any of the writings of the founders, uh, the founders did not believe that they were creating rights in the Constitution. The founders believed that they were recognizing pre-existing rights. That's why they used the word to secure in the copyright clause. Uh, the founders took a very Lockean view that you have an inherent property right in the product of your own hands and your work product and the fruits of your labors, and that the fruits of your mind is, is directly comparable with the fruits of your hand. So the founders did not believe they were creating a utilitarian intellectual property right. If you had quizzed the founders, I'm confident that every one of them would say, of course you have an inherent right to own and control that which you create and that which you, that which you invent. But as another example of the wisdom of our founders, they also understood the problems that would be associated with perpetual rights in this area. And so they were so wise as to put a utilitarian boundary on that. But I reject the idea that the founders wrote the copyright clause from a utilitarian philosophical basis, but that they did put a utilitarian boundary on the clause. So that's the answer to where do I come from on that. And if I could, yeah, you take the first. Just to address the first question, the, the answer is yes. Um, that uh, that obviously the goal is free trade, uh, and uh, and and it would be good for the United States to just lower all of its trade barriers. Uh, that would be good, regardless of what anybody else does. Uh, it's not at the moment politically feasible. Uh, so th this is why free trade agreements are are valuable. Um, you know, lowering foreign trade barriers is also a good thing. So if you can hold the the carrot of lowering trade barriers, as a, of foreign trade barriers, of, of foreign market access, as a way to gain support for lowering our own barriers. Right? This works out really well. Uh, but it's not, in any principled way, a, a necessary condition to opening up our own market. And I, I, I do think it's more important for people to, to realize that, uh, that, you know, that that is the, the, the ultimate goal here is, is to liberalize trade, and that the US could do that uh, without any kind of negotiations. Um, I, I think that the, the challenge really is, is to Tom on that, right? What else needs to be included? Is stronger IP necessary before the U.S. lowers its trade barriers? Well, and, and as you might guess, and this is a reaction a little bit to some of the things in your presentation, um, you know, I don't see much difference. You, you raised um, data exclusivity as an example. There's something that was very unlike the normal things that we do in trade agreements. I really don't think that's the case. I don't think... I don't think negotiating with a country over shall we have a 2% tariff on this or shall we have a 4% tariff on this is any different than saying shall we have 12 years of data exclusivity or shall we have eight. I don't think those are, you know, in a, in a different sort of category. I think those are, ex I, I think the IP details are more similar than dissimilar to the other kinds of items that come up in trade negotiations. It's something that a country wants. It's an item on the table to be negotiated. And each country negotiates with all of the self-interest and all of the energy that they can have. And at the end of the day, there are decisions to be made. What are we willing to give up and what are we willing to take in order to get an agreement off of the table? I, I do want to point out also on this idea, this sort of idealistic view of, of free trade agreements. We would agree. We would agree. In fact, there's, there's someone in this room who wrote a paper for IPI years ago that basically argued that, I, that the United States should simply unilaterally drop all of our trade restrictions and that that would be what would be best for consumers. Uh, 
I, I think it's a very impractical approach, but it's a very idealistic approach. I mean, we have huge disputes right now with, with Brazil and Argentina on our agricultural things, on sugar and on ethanol and things like that. Uh, there is no incentive for those countries to ever negotiate with us, ever, if we simply unilaterally disarm. So it's a very attractive idea for those of us who believe in limited government and free markets. It's not very practical, however. Other questions from the audience? Uh, over here on the left. Hi, it's John Keo here. Just interested in Tom and Bill's thoughts about this growing thinking amongst economists that sure, you want to protect intellectual property and copyright to a point, but they've come, there becomes an absolute tipping point where it is actually welfare destroying even for the US's own economy for consumers, but also because it can potentially stifle new innovation uh, from protecting incumbents, the big established players that may actually stifle new players coming in and innovating. I just talked. You want to go first? Yeah. No. <laughs> I. I mean. I. I think that that's that's the the crux of the idea that we need some kind of balance. Uh, that that the more is not necessarily better, uh, which is why I, I think it's it. it IP is different from other kinds of trade issues, uh, where there's not an, an obvious more and more liberalization, more and more IP. Uh, th those don't fit together, right? So there, there is a point at which certain kinds of protection that might be more intellectual protection, longer protection, uh, protection of more things, right? Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to take up uh, software patents this year. Uh, you know, there's a there's a a concern that that maybe the United States uh, is internationally bound uh, to grant patents to software, uh, right? Should we should we have that kind of uh, of discussion about the, the the correct scope of intellectual property law? And and I and I think that that we should, uh, and that as Margot mentioned, um, when you lock in the existing regime uh, in into international law, you make it a little bit more difficult to reform. Uh, existing laws to find that right balance. I tried to share some data that suggests that more actually is better, at least maybe from where we are right now. I mean, there's obviously a theoretical point at which more is harmful. But uh, when, when you show data that shows that when developing countries increase their intellectual property protection, uh, the cost of medicines goes down, R&D spending goes up, foreign direct investment goes up, I think for those countries at least, more proved to be better. Um, I think that those who assert that there are huge costs to consumers right now being incurred because of too strong of patent and copyright protection, they have a they have a real data problem. They have great anecdotes, but they have a real data problem. I think it's hard to demonstrate that, with the exception that we do have a significant problem in this country with with patent trolls, and with spurious lawsuits. And I think everyone in the room is probably aware that that's an ongoing debate that's going on right now. It's clear that there is an innovation premium right now that is being paid, money that is being diverted to litigation that could be going into innovation and R&D. But that's a problem that we're aware of. The, this general assertion somehow that there are just tremendous harms coming to consumers from too strong intellectual property protection, I really don't buy it. There seems to be an underlying assumption there that anything that is possible I should be allowed to do, and I should be able to do it free at no cost, and I should be able to do it immediately, and I should be able to do it sitting at home in my underwear on the couch. And that, is, that was never the intention of the intellectual property system or the copyright system. Uh, you know, any civilized society requires permission. 
And this, this, this new idea that's floating around of permissionless innovation, you know, within that Venn diagram, I think there are some good examples, but this idea somehow that it is fundamentally wrong to require permission before accessing the fruits of someone else's labor, I think is, is rather baffling to me. Uh, businesses, content companies have every incentive to make their content easily accessible and convenient. I mean, look at the new business models that are being developed and the HBO Go's and the Pandora's and the Spotify's and all this kind of stuff. You know, content companies are not an invading alien force hell-bent on destroying America. That's not what they are. They want their products accessed. They want them consumed. They want as many people as possible consuming their products. And, and they innovate to try to make that possible as conveniently as possible, just not for free. And that's admittedly, mm -hmm. rant, but I, if I could offer a, a short anecdote, I, I have tried really hard to pay the NFL to watch football games right. online, mm -hmm. and they right. will not let me right. do it. Right, <laughs> right. But you, but you could say the same thing. You could have said the same thing two or three years ago about a lot of the new innovation. I mean, it takes time. I mean, things things do happen. Mm -hmm. Things do happen. And 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 content companies that were previously previously resistant to certain kinds of business models are now eagerly embracing those models. So, you know, I mean, the, the content folks have been wrong in any number of ways, but, you know, we don't already know this stuff, you know? I mean, we have a not, everyone has the knowledge problem, you know? It's, 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 it's not just some people that have the knowledge problem. Every business, every industry has the knowledge problem. And we don't always know what we should be doing until we try several things and see what works. These things take time. Yeah, so a couple of things. Um, one, on the data problem, uh, it's really difficult to measure what can't happen. Um, second point on the permissionless innovation problem, the Supreme Court actually uh, has this case called Sony versus Betamax, uh, where they found that a technology capable of substantial non-infringing uh, use doesn't have to ask permission from those who are creating content that's being used on that technology. Um, and that has constantly been pushed back on by uh, those industries that sit at the advisory committee uh, table with the U.S. Trade Representative. Um, the, I wanted to go to your, your question about you know, economists realizing that more IP is not necessarily better. Uh, this is exactly my point, right? IP is a bunch of policy decisions. And so it matters both how you create those laws and who is at the table when you create those laws. Uh, it, this is not the same as tariffs, where you can make a unilateral uh, policy decision that less, fewer tariffs is better, period, full stop. Um, it's not just deregulating with a clear message. It's building regulation uh, on a bunch of really, really complicated levels. And so if you put it into the same, same negotiating system that you use for a simple kind of deregulation, you are inevitably going to get capture. I think uh, maybe one more question. I saw one here. Uh, George Peel. I'm an attorney and a contributor to Forbes.com. Um, Following up the tipping point argument, is it not fair to say that the IP issue now in the trade negotiations is maybe the leading edge this year of a larger problem, which is, let's call it regulatory capture of the entire trade negotiation process on an international level? That is, we're at a point where it may be more damaging for trade agreements that have regulatory impact internationally and domestically that may outweigh any tariff reductions, that maybe this is the time to say, let's not do the TPA this time, let's put a hold on it, let's stop this, especially when Harry Reid will guarantee it's the least transparent 
enactment of a TPA we've ever seen, if it gets through. Uh, maybe this is the time to rethink the cost-benefit of this because the trade agreements become so much an instrument of regulatory enforcement and, and increase. Thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I, I can I can say I, I think there's some truth to what you're saying uh, to the extent that uh, free trade agreements cover more regulatory issues, uh, issues that are not so cut and dry, uh, that you, you do run the risk of covering, setting policies that, that you might, that you wouldn't necessarily be very prudent. Uh, and it depends on who's pushing for that policy. Um, and normally I, I would make the case that, um, that the whole purpose of pursuing free trade agreements is to manage the capture. Uh, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, that you have particular interests pushing for th what they want in the trade agreement uh, because it, it, it turns into a negotiation. The danger is in losing sight of what the purpose of the agreement is. If you believe, and I, I will say, I, I think the rhetoric coming out of the Obama administration looks like this, although it's not that past presidents were a whole lot better. If you believe that the purpose of the trade agreement is to open foreign markets, is to benefit U.S. exporters, if that's, that's the singular purpose of the agreement, then you're going to run into trouble because you're going to see it as a, as a, a way to get favorable regulations in foreign countries uh, that favor particular industries. And right, that's not the right way to set regulations. Uh, like Margot said, if the goal is deregulation, right, then you, you, see, you see something of a, of a more linear goal. Um, but when you're setting those policies, and I would I would say that you know there are rules within the trading system that exist today that deal with regulatory protectionism that uh, define the right ways to set regulations and, and we should put stock in those. Um, but when you do pursue particular regulations, j just with IP policy, um, but also in other areas, uh, that it, that it can be dangerous um, as to who's for whose benefit you are setting those regulations. If I could just add, just from 30,000 feet, um, you know, if you're going to have a giant Leviathan government that taxes the bejesus and regulates the bejesus out of everybody, much of this is inevitable. You know, we, we, we've said much over the years, look, if you don't like lobbyists, shrink government, cut taxes. I mean, I mean, I, I, capture is inevitable. These things are all inevitable. If you, maybe this is a good way to sort of wrap up my comments at a Cato Institute event. If you're going to have a gigantic government that taxes and regulates everything, these things are inevitable. And the ultimate solution to capture, the ultimate solution to lobbyists is not more rules and regulation and bigger government. It's shrink government, cut regulations, and cut taxes, and the lobbyists and the capture will melt away. Well, that, that is a perfect way to wrap up a Cato event. So let, let me apologize. If, if you had a question that you wanted to ask, um, you know, come talk to us or join us for lunch up on, on the second floor. Um, hope to see you there. And uh, please join me in thanking uh, the panelists who did an excellent job at it.